Take your Bibles with me, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. The only begotten Son of God, a defense of translational quality. So last time we were together, we saw the Son's superiority to the prophets, in that while the prophets were fallible men who expressed through human mechanisms the will and the word of God by voice and by pen, the Son is the express image of God, the perfect and infallible expression of God's person and glory, who through his perfections and his obedience was exalted to sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this, of course, through his redemptive work. And this week we begin our journey into the second tier, in a sense, of Paul's first Argument where he expresses the son's superiority to the angels, not for the angels' sake themselves, but as we'll see as we go through the next two weeks of teaching, specifically to speak of the, the, the son's superiority to the law. And so in chapter 1 and into chapter 2, what Paul is arguing for is the superiority of the revelation of the son to the revelation of the law and the prophets. Now, within the scope of Paul's initial argument here, the second tier of argument, about Christ's superiority to the angels, he is going to quote seven Old Testament passages. And these Old Testament passages are going to show that in the Old Testament, that God has always ordained the Son, the Messiah, to be superior to angelic revelation and prophetic revelation the Law and the Prophets. And the first of these verses is going to be speaking of the Son as the begotten of the Father. Now, those of you who have been around for a while know that I have, that, that this topic, the only begotten Son of God, is of particular interest to me. But what I've never actually done is I've never actually preached this in its fullness in a recorded session. Typically, it's a Tuesday night thing. They're not recorded. Um, I go through it, and nobody but you get to benefit from it. Hopefully tonight, we can get this out, and, and others can benefit from it. Now, the point of the passage, we're not actually going to hit in its fullness tonight. This is going to be a bit of an aside. And the, the focus of this, remember this morning I talked about one of the things about the King James Bible that uh, as, a, as a translational choice that can muddy the waters a little bit of interpretation. And that being that this word world uh, has two different words that undergird it, one being cosmos, meaning the actual created world, and the other being this idea of the ages or seasons of time. Uh, one of them, world being cosmos, being more rooted in the idea of the material, and then uh, ion, the word for age, being more rooted in the idea of time or seasons of, of history. And I said this evening we're going to be talking about the King James Bible as well. And what, I'm, what I'd like to do this evening is walk you through the nature of this connection to the only begotten Son of God. And the reason why is because uh, anybody that is using another translation, if I were to take you to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and we were to read that psalm together, and then I were to take you to the passages in the New Testament which would speak to this idea of, of Jesus being the only begotten Son of God, in almost every other translation you're not going to see only begotten Son you're going to see a different translational gloss, something to the effect of one and only son. And I count this to be a tragic change. A tragic change. Where on the basis of a translational decision, whereby they are interpreting rather than, rather than 
telling you what the text says in various translations, they're actually fundamentally compromising a very important and powerful statement of Jesus Christ's identity and relationship to the Father. And so we, before we get into the meat of Paul's argument, which will be next week, I want to spend a moment just on the first of these seven Old Testament translations, or translations, Old Testament quotes, and express to you why I believe the King James is so valuable in this instance, among many, many other instances. So we begin in verse 5, and we end in verse 5 tonight, where the Bible reads this. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. We actually find two passages of Old Testament scripture quoted in verse 5. As I mentioned, there's seven total over the next several verses. We'll address the second one next time. We're only addressing this, the first one. Not the end again, but the first one. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And this is Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. We studied it on Tuesday night not too long ago. Highlighting the pride of earthly kings and contrasting their perceived glory with uh, God's anointed Messiah who will rule and reign in righteousness. The final call in that psalm is that the kings of the earth would be wise would revere God's anointed king as the king of kings. And within this psalm, we see the passage which Paul quotes here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. So we read Psalm 2, verses 6 through 8. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. We see the father promise to his son the uttermost part of the earth for his possession, and specifically on the basis of this declaration, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now we spoke just briefly last time together about how Jesus is an uncreated being. And we spoke about this in reference to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, where we saw the phrase regarding the Son being made so much lower, or better, excuse me, being made so much better than the angels. And we said at the time that this was not a statement of Jesus being a created being, not that he was made in the created sense, but rather it was a comparison between the glory of the angels and the glory of the Son, so that Jesus, as an eternal being, was made, was, was named, was established as being better than the angels because his name was made better than theirs. His person, his work, his glory, his message. Paul speaks clarity into this statement in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, as we would seek to compare Scripture with Scripture. And the questions are several from this passage. First, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. What day is this day? What is the day when the son was begotten? Was it the day that Jesus was born? Is that what it means that he was begotten? Because that word literally means born. Was this speaking of a day at the beginning of creation 
as many of the cults would say, where, where, where Jesus was created as Lucifer was created? And the other question, what does it mean that the son was begotten? You perhaps noticed from the last slide that the Greek word in Hebrews 1 for begotten was the word for being born, brought forth. But it does not by any means exclusively reference a person's birth or a person's creation. So what does it mean that the son was begotten and what is its significance? Now, some would say this is simply a reference to Jesus being born of the flesh. Speaking of the day that Jesus was born into the world, the day that we'll commemorate coming up here in Christmas, this is incorrect. And to understand this, we need to do just a little bit more comparing of Scripture with Scripture. The Scriptures are the best commentary on themselves. If you want to understand what the Scriptures say, God has this wonderful habit of explaining what he's talking about in other scriptural passages. And so we compare scripture with scripture and we figure out what, what God is saying here. And we figure this out from Acts chapter 13. So in Acts chapter 13, Paul and his company arrive in Antioch of Pisidia where they go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and they read the law and the prophets. After this, Paul preaches to those Jewish listeners at the synagogue, exhorting them through the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah sent of God, the anointed one, the Christ. So we read in Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 16. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when, uh, when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with an high arm brought them out of it. And about that the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot." And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them a, a David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course... He said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though, they desire, uh, and though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up from, uh, with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people." 
And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Okay, long passage there, but notice the argument that Paul is making here. That in the person of Jesus Christ, all of the Old Testament promises of Messiah have been fulfilled. That in the actions of Israel toward Jesus Christ, all of the prophetic promises of Messiah's suffering have been fulfilled. That the rulers of the people rejected Jesus, they slew him, they laid him in a tomb, after which God raised Jesus from the dead, right? This was his argument. And this is the fundamental essence of Paul's argument for Jesus being Messiah, that God raised him from the dead. And Paul links this resurrection directly to the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies related to Messiah, and specifically... He quotes Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, Isaiah 55, verse 3, and Psalm 16, verse 10. Paul links all three of these Old Testament prophecies to realities found in the Son fulfilled at the, at the point of his resurrection. God hath raised him from the dead. As it is also written in the second Psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Paul connects this day, the day that Jesus was begotten, to the day that God raised Jesus from the dead, okay? He makes that explicit connection here. Understand what this means. When God said of the Son, Thou art my beloved Son, this day have I begotten thee, Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, linked this begetting directly to the day of Jesus' resurrection. So that the day Jesus was begotten is not the day that he was born. It's nothing having to do with the day that God created the heavens and the earth and the angels and everything that, that was therein. And it has to do with the day that Jesus raised from the dead and the Father placed his divine stamp of approval on the finished work of the Son by raising him from the dead, saying, this is my Messiah and I'm proving it because I'm raising this one who claimed to be Messiah from the dead. Jesus on that day earned the title only begotten Son. On that day, he, in time, became the begotten Son of God, begotten through his resurrection. Now, this isn't a description of relationship like I would use with my own sons. I call Benjamin and Jedediah my sons because of the relationship that I have to them. When we speak of Jesus as the Son of God, when Jesus called himself the Son of God, he wasn't speaking of relationship there. He was speaking of a title, of a position that he had with his father, the inheritor of his father's glory and of his father's riches, the one who would inherit all things. 
announcing Jesus to be the heir of dominion, power, and glory because of his submission to the Father. And this is exactly what Paul means in verse 4 when he says that the Son has obtained a more excellent name than the angels, that name being the Son, not because of his relationship to the Father, but that he obtained this by inheritance. He obtained this name by inheritance. He is now the inheritor because he has fulfilled the will of the Father. He has done everything the Father. He has submitted to the Father, even unto death. Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him, right? And given him a name which is above every name. What is that name? The only begotten Son of God. That is the name that God gave to him because he fulfilled the will of the Father. He is no longer, he is not just a man. He is not like the angels. He is the only begotten Son of God. Now, before we finalize this point, let me just also point to the tragedy of misinterpretation and translational interference that plagues modern translations in regard to this. This is, this is kind of where I'm going here. See, many cults, incorrectly try to state that Jesus is a created being because he is called the begotten son. I've alluded to this. And because of this, because the Mormons believe that Jesus is a lesser God, a created God, that he transcended to deity, because the Jehovah's Witness believe that Jesus is a lesser God, a, a, a lesser being, a created being, and because they go, they, they, they proof text through this phrase, only begotten son, to prove that Jesus is a created being, here's what modern translators have done. Modern translators have removed the term begotten from this, from these different places in the New Testament where we find it, and instead almost universally translate it the one and only son or simply only son. So what they're doing there is they're saying when, when, when the Bible says only begotten, it's a Greek idiom. You know, we talked about this morning Greek idioms, right? Like meganoita, may it never be. And what that actually means, or in, in our language, what the King James translators translated it to be called is God forbid. That's them attempting to take a Greek idiom in the Old Testament and make it a, a, a New Testament, or make it a, a Greek idiom and then make it a, a English under, give it, give it English understanding, right? Take a Greek idiom and translate it into English in a way that makes sense to us. In the same way that if I, as, as I said this morning, for those of you that didn't listen to this morning's message, in the same way that if I were going to say, wow, that is a really cool car you have, and translate that into Spanish, I probably won't use the word cool I probably won't use the Spanish word for cool because the Spanish word for cool means cold, right? Just like it does in English, but we have now idiomized that word to mean something different. Neat, interesting, intriguing, I like it. And so we would use, we would translate the idiom, we wouldn't literally translate the words. And what modern translators are saying is we need to translate this, they have given this statement idiom status. It doesn't actually mean that he was begotten. It simply means that he has an exclusive and unique relationship to the Father. He's the one and only Son. But that's not it. That's not really what the text is saying. He was begotten. 
there was a day where he earned a title. And if we, if, if we strip that concept out of the text, we are stripping out a doctrinal concept. It strips from the believer the opportunity to study this deeper theological point. Jesus is begotten as a son. Not that he's a created being, but that he, there was a definitive point in time where Jesus earned the right to inherit the kingdom of God, which is essential to the Father's ability to give all power to the Son and to the followers of the Son while also maintaining his divine justice, that he may be just and the justifier of them that come to him by faith. This, this is intrinsically tied to the fact that Jesus was the last Adam, that he undid what Adam did, that he earned the right to inherit the glory of the Father, that he earned the right to this authority, and he earned it on the day that he was resurrected from the dead. He earned it on the cross and then through his resurrection. All that to say that this is not a trivial point, Christian. Now, the only translations that maintain this title for Jesus, only begotten son, of the big ones, I didn't look through every translation, that would take me all week, but of the big ones, the New King James retains it, the American Standard retains it, and the New American Standard retain only begotten son. All of the other ones change it. There are a couple lesser known ones that maintain it as well, Webster's and whatnot, Young's Literal. Every other translation strips this title from Christ. And let me be clear about this. I don't read into this any sort of a conspiracy. That they wanted to strip this doctrine from the Bible. That they, they, they're imposing humanism on the text to slowly strip away Christ's inheritance and Christ's glory. I, interpret, I don't interpret conspiracy into this. I don't read conspiracy into this. What I read is ignorance that many scholars haven't formed this doctrinal link, and so they don't know that they're stripping out a doctrinal distinctive when they change the translation because they haven't made the link themselves. But isn't this the point? Isn't this why we want to have a translation that doesn't try to interpret the text for us, but rather a translation that gives us what the Bible says and then allows us, through the Spirit of God, to form the links? that doesn't try to strip from us these distinctives or, or take something out of the Bible because they're afraid that we might not understand it properly or because they're afraid that we might abuse it? Is this not what pastors do sometimes? That they get up behind the pulpit and they tell their, their people, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord has not said this because they're afraid that if they tell their people the truth, their people won't be able to handle the truth? And so they don't tell their people the truth and instead they interpret something into the text in order to protect their people. Because if, if I give you the truth, it may be that you just kind of make the wrong decision about what to do with the truth. And so I try to protect you from the implications of that, from making the wrong decision, by making the decision for you. But that doesn't help you. It doesn't help you for me to make the decision for you. Because you need to make the decision because that's love. You need to love the Lord enough to make the right decision. You need to wrestle with the implications of these truths and step out and do what is right. It's not my job to do that for you. My job is to tell you the truth. And so isn't this the problem? 
How much better that a translator not attempt to change the Bible to protect the reader and rather faithfully translate the Bible as written and then trust the Holy Spirit to lead God's people into truth and to protect us from error. And this is one of several reasons why I love the King James Bible. It isn't a perfect translation. We talked just this morning about a gloss that I would prefer would be different. They did not mistranslate anything. It's not a mistranslation to use the word world. It's perfectly fine. We use the world all the time to speak of the spirit of this age, right? And, and of, of the nature of the age. It's not a mistranslation. It's just not the clearest translation. But the translators were determined not to change the text because they were afraid of what the text might imply or of the dangers. They translated the text as it was written, even if it didn't make sense to them or fit their doctrinal perspective or narrative. And thank God for that. Because that means that the Holy Spirit has, can use the text to open my eyes through study, through time, through life, through experience, through prayer, and through care to these wonderful truths that caused the Bible to make more sense and that opened my eyes to the deeper realities of the life, the work, and the glory of Jesus Christ. Thank God we have a translation that does not attempt to be the gatekeeper of our understanding because they wanted to protect us from the implications of understanding the Bible improperly. The Bible is perfectly capable of speaking for itself. The Spirit of God is perfectly capable of leading me into all truth. And thank God for a translation that allows that to be so. And what I want to do with the remainder of our time today is show you the depth of the riches of allowing the Bible to speak for itself. Because the translators chose not to ignore the words of the text in order to protect us from misinterpretation, we can trace a beautiful subset of truths about Christ through the Word of God based upon this concept of Him being the only begotten Son of God. So let's establish in clarity what it means that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, and then we'll trace what we find through it. The divine second person of the Godhead took on flesh, being born of a man, being born as a man, not of a man, he was born of a woman, <laughs> being born as a man named Jesus. This man was called the Son of God, not as a statement of relationship, as we are called the sons of God. That's a statement of relationship because we have been adopted into the family of God, therefore relationally we operate as sons of the living God. But rather, Jesus was given this title, Son of God, the Son of God, expressing the fact that he is the heir apparent to all of God's glory. While he always carried this title so that we see it used throughout the Gospels, if we can say it this way, he carried it on credit until the day when, he, when it actually he came into his inheritance, the day that the Father declared him to be the heir, the day of his resurrection. And this is very similar to what we find in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. In Revelation 13, verse 8, the Bible describes Jesus as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, right? 
Jesus has always been the lamb that was slain. Even before he was slain. Because Jesus was ordained to die. And so even before the foundation of the world, as God looked at the timeline of history, there was a point in time where he saw the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead, was going to come to the earth. He was going to take on flesh. He was going to live a human life. He was going to die a human death as the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And so knowing that it is indelibly written in the history of history that this was going to happen, Jesus is declared in Revelation 13 verse 8 to be the Lamb that was slain even before the foundation of the world. This is why Old Testament saints could be saved. Now they couldn't go to heaven yet because Jesus was the first fruit. So they went to this place called Abraham's bosom or paradise a waiting place until Jesus could be the first fruits of the redemption. But they were still justified by faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted on him for righteousness on credit, knowing that there was coming a day where Jesus would die on the cross to save them from their sins to pay for that price because Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The same type idea here. Jesus called himself the son of God, though he would not actually earn that title until the cross and then be given that title at the resurrection, he already called himself the Son of God, the heir apparent of God, on credit, because it was as good as done. But this title, Only Begotten Son, is an earned title that came through his submission to the death on the cross, given to him by the Father, when the Father raised him from the dead. So that the fact that Jesus arose from the dead validates that he is the Messiah of God, worthy to inherit the kingdoms of this world. As we read in 11, uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the clearest picture of this will be established actually here in, chap in, in Hebrews, a little bit later in our text, in Hebrews chapter 11, Verse 17. And the, this clear picture is established specifically because Paul used a phrase, only begotten. And we'll see what I mean in a moment. Now that we have an understanding of this idea, let's trace the theology. The term only begotten is used five times by John, once by Paul. It's used four times in the Gospel of John. It's used one time in 1 John. That would be the five times that John used it. And then it's used one time here in the book of Hebrews. So we read in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake, he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have, we, uh, have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So John highlights in verse 14 that this word, introduced in verse 1 to be God, 
was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Logos was made flesh, took on flesh and dwelt among us and revealed his glory to be the glory of the only begotten Son of God. The Logos took on flesh, became the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. The glory of the Word is the glory of the one who had been declared to be the inheritor of the kingdoms of this world. I'm not going to understand that this is what John is saying if I read another translation. Because another translation will say, the glory as of the one and only Son. Which is what the other translations read. And what's interesting about this, we say the glory is of the only begotten of the Father. The word Son is not in the Greek. The, word's not in the, the, the word Son is not in their Greek text either which is different from our Greek text, right? It's a different Greek text that underlies these translations. But I'm not going to understand what John is saying if I read the glory is of the one and only Son. What glory does that give him? What glory does it give him that he is the one and only Son? But if he's the only begotten Son, if he is begotten of the Father, then the glory that he receives is the glory of being the one that has the stamp of approval that he fulfilled the will of the Father and is thus the inheritor of the kingdoms of this world. And that's the glory. You don't get that from one and only Son. That doesn't connect him to the resurrection. That doesn't connect him to the Messiahship. That doesn't connect him to anything. You lose that. The glory that they beheld was the glory of Messiah. And the glory of Messiah was that he is the inheritor of all authority in heaven and earth. And we know that because he's begotten of God on the day that he rose from the dead. We continue then. For, uh, as, as I, uh, no, I'm not there yet. We continue then in verse, verses uh, 15, 16, 17, 18, right? No man hath seen God at any time, verse 18 says. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. No man hath seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son is, as Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 tells us, the express image of God's person, declared by the Father, conformed to the will of the Father, earned the title, the Son of God. God has declared it, and the Son has declared the Father. He is only begotten. He was not declared to be the one and only Son of God. He was declared to be begotten of God. And the Son declared Him. There's kind of a double meaning there, I believe. He hath declared Him. What's the pronoun reference? Which He is Him. Which, which He is who? He is he the Father? Is him the Father? Is he the Son? Is him the Son? It works both ways. God has declared the Son to be begotten at the resurrection, and the Son lived his life declaring the Father as the express image. The final two instances of the terms, as John uses it, are found in John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, the translational contrast in this passage is not the most theologically interesting, but in my opinion, it's the most practically interesting. If I read into this text one and only Son rather than only begotten Son. 
I am reading an argument based upon relationship. That the Father and the Son have a unique relationship. And we've all heard relational illustrations to this verse. That God has only one Son. And He loves that Son. And He gave this Son to die for the sin of mankind. And this is, relationally speaking, a tragedy. Because He had no other Son. Right? And I've heard all sorts of illustrations, right? Imagine you have a son, and that son, is, and there's a huge plague going around the world. Maybe we'll call it the COVID. And this plague is going around the world, and we find out that your son has this unique blood antibody that, that, that is immune to the great COVID. And scientists recognize that they can synthesize this antibody, but they need every ounce of your son's blood. And so now you have a choice. Do you keep your son or do you give your son to save the world, right? And they use this emotional, relational connection to try to bring about the power of John 3.16. But we'll see in a little bit through the Old Testament that this actually isn't the idea. The primary emphasis is not on Jesus' relationship with the Father as his only son relationally, but rather Jesus' position with the Father as the heir of all things, of which we have already spoken. So that the emphasis of this passage is not the emotional tragedy of losing a son and the love of a father has for a son, although that love is there, no doubt. But you know what? Isaiah 53 tells us it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Doesn't it? It pleased the Lord to bruise him. So we're not talking about a father who just relationally, tragically, emotionally lost his son. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. But rather, the emphasis is upon the son's willingness to obey the will of the father because of the love that the father has for you and I, not for his son. Because God's love for you and God's love for me was so powerful, it pleased the Lord to bruise the only begotten Son of God. Jesus went to the cross. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. And the Father is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And this is the emphasis of John 3. Not the Father's love for the Son, though we know the Father loves the Son, but the Father's love for you and I. So much so that he sent his son to, to, to die, that we might live. And the son's willingness to submit to the will of the father earned him this sonship, the preeminence, the glory, and the kingdoms of this world. And my statement here, I believe, is corroborated by John's use of the term again in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. John writes, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation, covering, atonement, for our sins. Notice the emphasis is not the love of the Father for the Son, which is obvious there, but not the emphasis. The emphasis is that God loved us. So much so that he sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. 
Now we hasten to the final picture to show why this title is so important. And it comes as the only time in the New Testament where the term only begotten is used, not referring to Jesus. And that's Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Okay, so here we are. The final instance of this word used, and this in relation to Abraham and Isaac. And at a cursory glance, we might believe this to contradict everything that I just taught. It might seem that the idea of this passage is relational rather than positional. Pastor, you're talking about Abraham and Isaac. This is a relationship between a father and a son. This is a father not wanting his son to die. But look a little closer. Yes, Abraham would loathe to give up his son, whom he loved. And I'm sure Abraham did love his son and was loath to offer him up. We know he was. We know it was something Abraham didn't want to do. But notice verse 18. After he calls him the only begotten son, notice what he connects this gift to. The fact that Isaac was the seed. He was the inheritor. He was the one who was supposed to inherit all things. And he was being given up. This is a, relation, a positional relationship that Paul is referencing here. Isaac was the heir apparent. And what else do we know that proves this point? He's called here Abraham's only begotten son. But was Isaac Abraham's only son that was born to him? No. He wasn't even the first son born to him. Ishmael was. And yet, though Ishmael was the firstborn son, Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac was the heir. Isaac was the begotten son. He was the son who had been given heirship, inheritance. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for she shall not inherit with the son of promise. Right? So while Abraham loved his son... The confusing part of God's call upon Abraham to offer up his son is not that this was his only son, but that this was his only begotten son. This was the chosen son. This was the one that God said, in this will be your heir, your seed. This is the one that I've chosen. Then why are you asking me to kill him, God? Right? And by the way, notice in our King James Bible, if you have your Bible open, it's not going to be on the screen here because I don't take the time to translate the italics in. But notice that son... Oh, I did here to make the point. <laughs> notice that son is in italics in our King James Bibles. And what that means is that the word is not in the original Greek. It's supplied by the translators for clarity. The phrase here is not only begotten son, simply only begotten. And when combined with verse 19, we see the point is not simply that Isaac was his relational son, but that Isaac was his positional heir, heir to the promise, the chosen seed. 
And this is how it's framed in Genesis as well. Genesis chapter 22. We'll read verse 2, then verse 12. And he said, this is God speaking to Abraham, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, the love is there, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Verse 12. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad. This is when he stops Abraham from killing him. Neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou feared, fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. God calls Isaac twice his only son, though Isaac was not his only blood son. But as far as the relation, as far as the position is concerned, as far as the promise is concerned, as far as the inheritance is concerned, this son is the son of promise, the only son that has been given this promise. This is the son, the positional heir to Abraham. He was the son of the covenant. The son positioned as heir not only to the riches of Abraham, but as the chosen he seed and the heir to God's covenant, something Ishmael was not, nor was Ishmael even qualified for, because Ishmael was not born of Abraham's wife. And so Isaac was, as described in Hebrews 11, not just Abraham's son, but his only begotten son. And the only reason why we understand that is because we understand the theology surrounding it, because Christ has called it, and we connected the dots. So why was that? So, so then Isaac becomes Abraham's only begotten son by virtue of Abraham's willingness to yield him. And Isaac's submission to the altar of sacrifice. This is an indivisible link forged between the account of love and obedience in Genesis 22 and the account of love and obedience found in the reconciliation of the world to God on the cross and through the resurrection. A link which a Greek scholar might form if they're studying the Greek text, but a link which a large number of English-speaking churches and pastors and laymen will never be able to form because their English translation hides it from them. And this helps us form an overarching philosophy concerning the nature of dissemination of information, not just in the church, but outside of the church. We call this the priesthood of the believer, that the job of the church, the job of your pastor, or the job of a Bible translator is not to tell you what to think, is not to tell you how to interpret the Bible. The job of the church, the job of your pastor, and the job of a translator is to tell you what the Bible says. And after you know what the Bible says, they are free to explain to you why they think it means what it means. But if any authority or, or institution skips the step of telling you what the Bible says and jumps directly to telling you what they think the Bible means, they are taking from you the right, the capacity, may I say your God-given right, 
through the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life to wrestle with your own thoughts and the implication of your own thoughts, your experiences, your ideas, in order to come to the conclusion that God desires you to come to in a way that makes sense to you. And in certain scenarios, this goes just fine. If the authority or the institution is honest, if they are properly translating the Bible, this can work out, right? Pastor, quit with all of this stuff and just tell me what the Bible says. Okay, fine, I can do that. Even if what they believe is not entirely accurate, it can work out. We even see this in some of the King James things, right? I told you, we talked this morning about the way the, the, the King James Bible translates the word for afterlife. Though they do some things that muddy there, if you, if you compare enough scripture with scripture, you can figure it out. But any number of times in history, this privilege whereby an authority, a spiritual authority, has instead of telling people what the Bible says, told people what they believe the Bible means, translated it for them, interpreted it for them, this privilege has been used by authorities to deny the people clarity related to truth, and this for any number of reasons. Perhaps because they don't trust the people to come to the right conclusion, so they obscure the truth. But then when the people find out what the truth is, they feel like they've been lied to, and then they become alienated. They feel disenfranchised, and they may throw out the baby with the bathwater, and we've seen this in any number of people, even in our generation. Perhaps they obscure clarity for less upright reasons, because they want to maintain control. They don't want to admit that they're wrong. They want to be allowed to do what they want to do, so they obscure from their listeners the truth in order to maintain power. But whether it's for proper, uh, well-meaning reasons or not well-meaning reasons, the solution to all of this is the solution which God gives. Tell the truth. Shine the light. And more specifically, to allow the spirit of truth, the spirit of the living God, freedom in our hearts and our lives. And freedom always comes with a measure of danger, doesn't it? In fact, this is why most people throughout history of the world don't want freedom. We hear sometimes this idea, the heart of man longs for freedom. Not really. We're seeing this in our age, aren't we? Our society is begging to have freedom stripped in order to have security. Isn't it? Our society is begging to have freedom stripped from them in order that they can have money from the government. Take away our freedom and give us security. Give us a paycheck. Give us food. Give us, give us a feeling. Give us health care. Give us a feeling of a safety net. We will give up our liberty if you will give us a safety net that makes us feel secure. And the reason why throughout history most people have not wanted freedom is because freedom carries unique risks that those in bondage do not have to assume. In our culture, some want freedom to walk into a building without fabric covering their faces. They want that freedom. Many of these people aren't denying that there's a virus floating around, which is dangerous and deadly to many, but they've simply determined that their freedom to decide is worth the risk of getting sick. 
And if this disease is not worth the risk to them, then they'll cover their faces with fabric. Freedom comes with a level of risk. If I want the freedom to be able to make my own decisions as to what to do with my money, then I am inheriting the risk that if I do not use my money in a certain way or save enough money or buy insurance or whatever it might be, I am, I am inheriting a risk that I am going to get sick and I'm not going to have enough money or a safety net to cover it. I am assuming that risk, but I am gaining in return the freedom to do what I want with my money. Or I can say, government, take my money, take away my freedom to use my money as I will, and mitigate my risk. So that now I can feel as though I have some measure of coverage, but at the expense of the fact that I get to choose what to do with my own money. Freedom comes with risk. If I have the freedom to build businesses, to invest as I will, that comes with the risk that that business is going to fold and I'm going to lose everything. Now, I could not exercise that freedom and never build anything, and then I won't risk losing it. But I also, also I lose the reward that liberty gives me, which is the reward of if that business goes well, right? Freedom is dangerous, but the lack of freedom is always more dangerous still. And so we desire to be a free people. God forbid that I should ever obscure from you the truth because I don't want you to have to wrestle with the implications of that truth. Far better that I'm honest with you, even if it doesn't fit my desired end, and then rationalize to you how it is that I reconcile various truths in our worldview and in operation. That's not comfortable. I tell you something that you may not want to hear. Something that's not safe and something that's not easy. But it's true. And then we can rationalize why we go to the place that is safe and easy. While acknowledging that we're there by choice and not by compulsion. Because this is where safety is found. And God help that we would live this way. In our church body, as we raise our children, as we disciple one another. And God, and God help that our society might figure it out one day too. But bringing it back to the church, God help that we would trust the Spirit of God in the lives of believers to teach them. And though this comes with risks, it also comes with great rewards. That the risk of leaving only begotten Son in our Bible is that one of us might read it and say, hmm, maybe Jesus is a created being. Maybe he's not God. Maybe he's created. Maybe he is, he is a lesser being. Maybe he's ascended to some level of divinity. Maybe he's not actually the uncreated, eternal, ever-existent God. That's a risk that leaving begotten in the Bible lays out there. But there's also a reward that if I compare Scripture with Scripture... And I take the begotten and I go back to its original quote in Psalm 2. And then I go to Acts chapter 13 and I see how Paul interpreted it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That I unlock through study an entire realm of doctrinal truth that connects me ever closer to the reality of the finished work of Jesus Christ and its power in my life through the resurrection. 
And for each person we might lose to misinterpretation because we afforded them the freedom to make an informed decision for themselves, we will gain men and women who, having all of the information at their disposal, all of the options on the table, but have done, uh, uh, make a decision to follow the doctrinal path to truth. Because they heard the voice of the shepherd and they followed him into that truth. And this is the kind of church we want. These are the kind of individuals we want to be. Not a group of people who are shoehorned into a singular way of thinking, into a singular mode of interpretation, and told that anything else is evil or wrong. Not a group of people who cannot be trusted to hear and to know truth in its time and in its season but to be a group of people who, having all of the information at their disposal, have chosen to take it, consider it with care, interpret it consistently with other scripture, interpret it deliberately, and above all, rest our loyalty not upon an interpreter, but upon God and his word to come to proper conclusions over time as we remain humble, teachable, and flexible. And I believe that this singular doctrine encapsulates a philosophy, a translational philosophy, which has been lost today through modern translations. And this is one of many, many reasons why we hold fast to the King James Version of our Bibles. Because these translators saw fit not to tell us what to believe, but to tell us what the Bible says. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.